Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, today we're going to have an interview, the first of two interviews with Dylan McGaster. Dylan's been sailing in the Mediterranean for a few years. He has an interesting story to tell, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. What's been going on here? Well, as you know, I'm looking forward to participating in the uh, Corsica Classic Regatta this year, assuming it's actually held, and I'm not sure it's going to be held. But I'm assuming it will, so I went ahead and booked some uh, a flight from uh, Salt Lake City to Paris uh, using Sky Miles because they're easier to put back in place if uh, if it falls through. But I've had two experiences in booking my flights uh, within Europe because the deal is I'm going to fly from Salt Lake to Paris and then from Paris down to Corsica and then from Corsica back to Paris and then from Paris over to Venice. And <laughs> I first booked that flight from, from Paris to Venice on Lufthansa Airline. And uh, then they sent me an email a couple weeks later and said, hey, uh, we've changed our flights. And they booked me on a flight the following day, which would have made it impossible to catch my return flight back to the United States. And apparently they just totally canceled that flight. So I had to go back on, and now I booked a flight from Paris to Venice via Air France. And I'm hoping I'll be able to go. I called up the marina in Montfalcone, and they said, yeah, we're open for business. We're sailing. Everybody's going here in and out. Now, as an American, I'm not sure that I'll be able to get into Italy right now. But I'm flying over at the end of August, so that gives me about a month and a half before I have a uh, go-no-go situation. So far, I've got possibly Neil Fletcher will be joining me and Kevin Yeager. Kevin, I need to get back to you because we talked and I haven't given you the go-ahead, but uh, I'm not sure if it's a go-ahead or not, but you may as well plan on uh, on. Looking forward to it, and give me a call, and we'll go over the details. Kevin is a Patreon, so uh, when I had an opening, I gave it out first to my patrons, and then, uh, of course, my clients first, and then my patrons, and then friends. If Kevin doesn't go, or if Neil doesn't go, then it'll probably be uh, my nephew, Mike, who sailed with me before. Kevin, this would be first, Kevin's first time, and with Neil Fletcher, Neil, I've sailed with him a couple times before. So the plan would be we put the boat in the water fairly quickly. We're not going to be doing a lot of maintenance on the boat. Go out and sail for a little bit, get out into international waters, start my VAT time clock over again, head on over to Venice, do some sailing in the lagoon, work our way back around Grotto, which is a delightful little town, and and then back to Montfalcone. So it's really only going to be maybe two and a half weeks of sailing but I'll be gone for almost a month because I'll be uh, spending about six days in Corsica, assuming that the regatta takes place, and everybody seems to be canceling everything right now. So today, we're going to have this interview with Dylan, but before we get on to that interview, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. 
Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina? Store it on your boat? The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a 5-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. So last week, uh, up at the ranch, there's a couple other families that live in the valley that we have up there. And one of them is my nephew. And my nephew's a pretty hands-on guy. He's a good mechanic. And whenever I have uh, mechanical problems, I go consult him. He came over to our house uh, a couple Sundays ago. And I wanted to show him my new ham radio. I bought a new ICOM IC7300 uh, transceiver, high-frequency transceiver. I'm an amateur radio operator. Have been for since before I sailed across the Atlantic. So probably about 90, probably about 93, I got my, my license. So I took him up to my office to show him my new ICOM transceiver. And as we were walking by the ping pong table, which I have set up as a sewing table right now because I've been sewing some hatch covers for my boat, he spotted the uh, Sailrite sewing machine. He said, whoa, is that a uh, industrial sewing machine? And I said, yeah, that's a Sailrite. He said, wow, that's really nice. I've always wanted to use one. He said, I've been trying to sew some webbing together and my wife's sewing machine just doesn't do it. I said, this one will do it. And I showed him the three layers of leather that I sewed through, and uh, he was impressed. Anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. All right, let's get on to our interview with Dylan. Today I'm doing an interview with Dylan McGaster. Is that how you pronounce it, Dylan? Nailed it. All right. Totally perfect. <laughs> Dylan wrote me an email a couple days ago, so this is actually a pretty fast turnaround. And he wrote, hello, my name is Dylan McGaster. I'm the creator and of the successful YouTube channel, F-L-O-R-B, with 600,000 okay, 600, subscribers and over 100,000 100, views, is that, or 100 million views. Which is that? It's over 100 million views. Okay. And he gives a link to the YouTube channel, and I'm putting it in the show notes. I believe if you were to bring me on as a guest to your podcast, we would create an episode that would provide a lot of value and entertainment to your listeners. I started a career in YouTube at the age of 21 years old with a backpack and $1,000. After six months in South America, I converted a van in order to begin my travels in North America. About two years ago, I moved to the Mediterranean and bought a sailboat with only seven days sailing experience. I have since sailed from Spain to Croatia, all the way into the Black Sea, and all the way 
down to Tunisia, where I'm currently living aboard my 1939 Morgan 382 sailing boat. The Aranhad. How do you how do you, how do you pronounce that? Yeah, so it's Ariane Rod. Ariane Rod. Uh, it's a Celtic okay. name. Yeah, she's a 1979 Morgan 382 sailboat named Ariane Rod, and so yeah, she's what 41 years old. Now. Okay, she's already been around the world once already, and she's crossed the Atlantic both ways. All right, let me finish reading this until until the borders reopen. My life choices and professional journey have been called anything from risky to unconventional, but Florb is now a full-fledged, reputable film production company based in Los Angeles, California. I look forward to hearing from you. So now I have you on Skype. It only took a couple days to arrange this. I've got your YouTube channel up on my computer, and you got some stories to tell. So uh, fill out a little bit of your bio and let's start to, to learn about you. Yeah, sounds good. So, I mean, that's the real, the real elevator pitch, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I've been now. I've been living on a sailboat for about two years, and um, before that, I was living in a van, traveling in North America, um, filming for Florb, which we film short documentaries on alternative uh, space. Art- oh, sorry, alternative living spaces. Um, like tiny houses, vans, people that live in sailboats, people that live in tree houses, um, eco villages, anything that is un- unconventional and um, cool, we film and feature on the channel. And so, been working on that now for a few years, I guess coming up on three or four years with that. And then recently, we just started a second channel, which is all kind of based around sailing and adventure. Um, and that one's just self-titled, so that one's Dylan McGaster, also on YouTube. But, um, yeah, so I've been traveling full-time for four and a half years now. Before that, I was um, I lived in New York City for three months, um, and then I grew up in Kansas City um, and did it, a little bit of traveling growing up. N- nothing too insane, but a good amount. Um, yeah. Well, that's what else would you well, like to know? Well, what does Florb stand for? I looked at that and I said, what the heck does that yeah. mean? So Florb is obviously not a real word. I made that up. It's a contraction of the two words floating orb because we live on a floating orb that's circling a giant floating orb of nuclear explosions that somehow provides us with uh, sunlight and life. And so I thought that was kind of crazy that that's the situation that we're all in and it never really gets brought up. And so when I was I was trying to think of different names to uh, for starting a company and um, all of them were centered around the idea of it, the company being based on Earth, not based in the country. Um, and when I when I somehow floor pop into, popped into my mind and I was like, that's it. That's a that's a good one. It's one syllable. It's easy to remember. It's not a real word. So it's definitely not trademarked. Um, it's fun to say it sounds funny and it's got an actual meaning behind it. Have you trademarked it now? Yeah, we should probably do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, get on that right now. <laughs> I've got one trademark for my Series 7 podcast. Uh, and it, I had to jump through a few hoops, and it cost me a little bit of money, but I'm glad I did it. You know, it's intellectual property is what everything is nowadays. So, Yeah. All right. Yeah, definitely. I should definitely do it before somebody else does it and then makes me pay them to get it back. 
yeah, and you got a little logo there. You haven't trademarked any of that, so somebody could start grab that and go with it. So anyway, we won't we won't yeah. give any ideas to anybody. So all right. So <laughs> meanwhile, we talk about it on yeah, a podcast. Right. Hopefully, all of your n- listeners are very kind people. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm looking at your most recent videos here, and. Uh, do you make all these videos yourself or do you have a crew now that makes these videos? So now we've got um, we've we've got a we're a team of three and then we work with other independent contractors um, and we're we're constantly um, working to expand the team. So uh, f- for the first let's see, uh, first four years it was just me and I did everything. I did all the researching. I did all the filming. I did all the scheduling. I did all the editing and I did all the posting and traveling and driving. I did all that by myself. And then, um, just, you know, relatively recently, about two years ago, I was able to start building a team. And so now we've got three of us that work full time on floor. And, um, and like I said, then we have other shooters, um, in America that we work with occasionally, um, and we're working on expanding that. So uh, at the moment, there's uh, two of us film and edit consistently for the channel. And then uh, one of us works on more back-end managerial stuff. And then we have other independent shooters that work with us as well. Well, you're an entrepreneur. How do you support the podca- the, uh, the YouTube channel? Do you, do, you, do you get enough from advertising or do you advertise during the YouTube show i haven't watched any of them yet so i'm just looking at them right now but it looks like there's some very interesting topics yeah yeah so we we do advertising a few different ways one is through built-in youtube monetization which is real simple you just click a button and then we also um, collaborate with brands and do um, branded videos so where we incorporate a sponsor into a video and then create an ad for them um, at the end of the video. And so we do both of those built into floor of the YouTube channel. And then we have other streams of revenue as well. We have Patreon, we have, um, affiliate links. We have, um, yeah, a few, few other streams of revenue as well. All right. So I'm, z- but I would say the vast majority of the revenue is, uh, advertising of some sort. Do you get much from YouTube? Cause I, you know, I, I thought you had to have like millions of views and of course you do, but for you to get really much of anything out of YouTube. Um, it's, yeah, it's enough. It's, we're not pulling any like crazy numbers or anything like that, like some people, but it's, um, we definitely have, have to have multiple streams of revenue in order for us to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm zooming down through the, uh, the list of videos and the first one that I'm interested in is sailing to King's Landing, Dubrovnik, Croatia, which you posted about a year ago. So let's let's yeah, let's so back, up, let's back up though before that, and let's talk talk about you deciding to get the sailing bug and uh, how you went about buying your boat. Yeah, so I don't know exactly what it was that got me into sailing. I think it might have been Eddie Landis in Olympia, Washington, who I made a short documentary about a couple years ago. He built his own sailboat. It took him. 10 years and he built a ferro cement sailboat back in the 70s 
and it is an epic boat. He built every single thing on that boat. All the metal fastenings he welded and fabricated himself. Um, he built his own cleats. He he did all of the wire, the mesh, and the uh, plaster work for the hull. Um, he did everything in that boat. It's absolutely amazing. And um, it looks like a pirate ship. It looks like a mini pirate ship. Pirate ship. It's a Benford designed schooner, um, and he. I filmed that video on him, and I spent like one day on his boat, really more like an afternoon filming this video, and then we went out for one sail. It was you know like less than ten knots of wind. We we're just ghosting by basically, and Eddie's in his in his seventies now. And he's he's a really strong man, and he built his own house. He built he's built a lot of things, um, and so I've always had a lot of respect for him. But I think he was the one that first got me interested in the idea of sailing, seeing his boat, and then his son Ocean. Um, Ocean's a bit younger than me, and he has his own sailboat. And I believe Ocean's living on his sailboat on mooring or in the marina um, up in that area. And, um, so that was, I mean, I filmed that probably a year to probably a year before I moved into a boat, maybe even a year and a half before I moved into a sailboat. Um, but I, I wasn't really thinking about it after that. Then I started, um, traveling some more, went up into Canada, went back down into, um, Oregon. And, and then at some point I, this I was living in a van this whole time, and at some point I was like, okay, I, I'm getting a little bit tired of living in a van. It's a bit small. The van I had, I couldn't actually stand up in. I was having a similar experience to what I had two years before um, with the backpack. I was traveling, living out of a backpack, and I was like, all right, I think I'm pretty done living out of a backpack, but I'm not done traveling. Um, and so the same thing was happening with the van, and I was like, well, what can I move up to? It's like, well, I could get a bigger van. I could get an RV. Or I could, you know, get an apartment or a house, which I don't want to do. Or I could get a boat. I guess the other option's a bus. Um, but for me, the boat seemed like the best option. It's like a boat is basically a full-sized apartment on the water. Uh, depending on how big of a boat you get, it starts turning into an actual house. Um a lot more space you can walk around you can still move wherever you want to obviously you can't move on land um, but you get that freedom and the accessibility of the water and the adventure aspect of it is you know through the roof of living on the sea and dealing with the weather and all that kind of stuff and maneuvering the boat um, can be really intense sometimes so to me that was like yeah it seems like a good step and so I, I just made a decision like I think it was in like November that um, this coming year I'm going to move to the Mediterranean by a sailboat, and that was my plan. I had no sailing experience besides that, you know, little time I had spent on Eddie's sailboat. So I decided to drive down to Cabo San Lucas to get scuba certified because I figured you're living on a sailboat, you're going to be scuba diving all the time. That was my thought, um, and so just drive all the way down to Cabo to get. Um, certified. I mean, obviously could have get, got certified in like California, but it seemed a lot more fun to drive down through Mexico. Um, and on the way down, met this man named Preacher Man Roy. He was from the Ozarks. And Preacher Man Roy is, he's in his like 60s or something like that. And um, he's a snowbird. So he, you know, works 
um, during half the year. And then during the wintertime, he goes down to Cabo San Lucas, or not to Cabo, he uh, goes to the Bay of Concepcion, that area. Um, I can't remember can't remember exactly what that area is called um and, and lives down there anyway he's got like a 12 foot sailboat and so i came across him because we were camping on a beach and i mentioned you know what i was trying to do and he was like well i've got a sailboat and i know how to sail i was like can i go sailing with you because i literally don't know anything about sailing so we spent one day and sailed around this little peninsula and um it was real fun i mean it was probably only like six miles maybe um and it was yeah real fun in that little boat in those little boats you you feel the wind and everything is so much more responsive we almost capsized the boat a couple times um and then made it all the way down to cabo and in cabo uh bobby from sailing doodles he reached out to me and was like hey you're in mexico you want to go sailing i was like yeah actually i do that's that's actually exactly what i want to do i want to go sailing and scuba diving so we went in like three, four days, we went out and I think it was three days, went and stayed on anchor, went scuba diving um, and went back uh, to Cabo. I was on a bit of a schedule, so we only actually sailed for maybe like four hours. The wind was really light both the days um, and headed to the anchorage. We wanted to get there before dark and there was no wind, so we motored there. And then on the way back, we sailed for a couple hours. So then after that, I drove back up to California and then for California, flew to Florida and then took a five-day sailing course. Um, and now this is about March. So I made the decision in November, somewhere around there. And then by March, I was in Florida and I took a five-day sailing course. And then immediately after that, drove down to Miami, met up with a uh, crew that I had put out a crew call on youtube saying this is what i'm doing i don't have a boat but we're going to the mediterranean we're going to get a boat and we're going to sail who wants to go that was basically the pitch and so tara and jackson met me in miami and we hopped on a cruise ship and did it took a repositioning cruise to barcelona um and so that was a really great motivating factor to me because it was like well i already paid for the ticket these two people are meeting me here and they're going and also the ship's leaving whether or not i'm on it so it's like there's all sorts of motivations to to make this dream come true so to speak and so we then cruised across the um atlantic and repositioning cruises for those people that don't know it's um when a cruise ship needs to get worked on done on it, if it needs to get like hauled out of the water or something like that, they normally take it to its home port or somewhere, and they normally need to cross an ocean. And crossing an ocean on a cruise ship is great, but nobody really wants to do that because it's a one way ticket, right? It's most cruises end in the same spot, so that then you can go back to wherever you you came from. And so the tickets are way cheaper. And also, they're just trying to cover the costs of moving the ship because it's extremely expensive to move one of those ships. Um, so so it's, it's way, way cheaper than a normal cruise ship. And uh, But you still get all the benefits and all the amenities of being on a cruise ship. So whenever you take into account that it's like 14 days of lodging and food that are included, plus all the fun and... Um, you're actually getting transported halfway across the planet. You don't have to deal with jet lag, um, and you get the the four stops or whatever. Like we stopped in the Azores, Portugal, and then Spain. 
when you when you add all that up, it's pretty negligible the difference between that and then like flying across and staying somewhere and paying for food for fourteen days. Um, so we did that, and uh, maybe five days before we got to Barcelona, I locked down the boat that we were going to buy. And the day we got to Barcelona, we disembarked at about 8 a.m. and then went to a Starbucks and relaxed for a few hours and then immediately moved on to the sailboat the same day. So it worked out perfectly. But when we got on the sailboat or when we got on the cruise ship, we we didn't have a boat lined up to buy. So you bought this boat sight unseen then? Yeah. Now, listen, let me ask you a question. You yeah. said it's a 1939 Morgan, <laughs> and I just did a... 79. Okay, so that, I thought that was a typo, because I just pulled up uh, Morgan 382s, and it looks like the first year they were made was 1978 that I could figure out. Oh, in my email, did I accidentally... Yeah, you put 1939. I thought, wow, that's an old boat, so that's okay. My apologies. So, correction, it's a <laughs> 1979 Morgan. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, so you bought this boat sight unseen in Barcelona, Spain, correct? Yes. Yeah. Now, that's pretty risky. That you was, know that's pretty um, risky, right? <laughs> yeah, I know that was very risky. The way I found it is even more questionable. I, I, because I knew nothing about sailing when I wanted to do this. And so I went to Reddit, which Reddit has been very helpful in my life. And I went to a sail, the sailing Reddit and I was like, hey, I want to go to the Mediterranean and sail. What documents do I need to make this legal? Because I don't even know what kind of documents you need. And I got a few comments pointing me to like noon site and that kind of stuff. And then one guy basically like, nah, that's impossible to do by April. And then one guy saying like, hey, it's not that hard. This is all you need, blah, 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 blah. By the way, I'm in Barcelona, and I'm trying to sail a sailboat because um, I just moved on to a catamaran. And so that was – so I, I started talking to him. This was like back in uh, maybe like January or February. And so I started talking to him, and he was – I was like, well, how much do you want for it? And he was like, 30 grand. And I was like, well, I think I just stopped emailing him because I was like, I'm not buying a boat four months before I need it for 30 grand that I've never seen before. That's just not happening. Um, and so I just stopped emailing him. And about a month later or something like that, he emailed me again and he was like, Hey, how about 15 grand? And I was like, okay, now, now we're talking. Um, and so, um, he, he was, he was talking about needing to take it to, to another country to uh, do some work on it or something. And I, so to keep him to keep the sailboat actually in the marina, I was basically like, "Hey, this is what I'll do. I'll I'll take your word on it that it's a sound boat, and uh, I'll buy it without a survey and all that kind of stuff if you'll sell it to me for ten grand." And so he said yes. Well, that's a bargain. That's that's one of the older yeah. fiberglass boats, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah you might have to replace the engine and the rigging and maybe some of the electrics, but the hull should be pretty solid, right? Right. And I did end up place, replacing the engine about a year later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that was possibly more my fault than it was the engine's fault. And um, there, it, it was one of those situations where it was like, okay, it's going to cost, 
you know, like nine grand to fix this all said and done with shipping and all these like crazy, you know, importation fees and all that kind of stuff. Or it's going to cost, you know, 12 to buy a new engine. It's like, well, geez, I know that's a big difference, but like that's also a lot of money to put into a 41 year old engine. Um, so, so we ended up going with a new one. What, what brand did you get? I got a Beta Marine 38. It's great. So we got plus eight horsepower because it was a Yanmar 30. Um, and then Betas are, you know, notor- not notoriously, they're famously known for being extremely simple, super easy to repair, repair and incredibly reliable, and you can get parts from anywhere. So that was like my, uh, one of the reasons I didn't go with uh, a newer, a new Yanmar, a new Volvo Penta was because in some, if I decide to take this around the world, in some more remote locations, um, some parts can be harder to find. Rather, a Beta Marine is just like the most basic possible. The only electric thing on this engine is the starter. Um, so, and we also saved sixty kilograms. Okay, okay. I'm not familiar with the Beta. I'm going to have to look it up. So, I'm going to look. Yeah, they're made in. Um, they're made in the UK, and it's a it's a Kabuto tractor engine that's oh, been marinized. Okay, okay, Kabuto. I've got a Kabuto outside right now, so those are good engines. Yeah, mm. yeah. Where are you at? Oh, I'm in uh, I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, actually, up on up in the mountains, up in the Uinta Mountains, and I have a tractor out there that I use mm. for stuff around the ranch. Nice. So that's where I'm at. So yeah, but you're in Tunisia nice. right now. Utah's fantastic. You're in Tunisia right now, huh? Yeah, I'm in Tunisia right now. <laughs> okay so let's let's start let's start at the beginning you bought the boat you hopped on the boat and uh you yeah. had a little bit of sailing experience so you did have uh what what documents did you have with you did you have a license did you have an asa 104 or something like that with you or what did you have right so i i did a five-day sailing course with reef runner sailing in panama city florida and that got me asa 101 103 and 104 um so i had that but i didn't have any licenses or anything like that um, being from kansas you don't have to have a like you don't have to have any certification of any kind to own and operate a boat in no and you, and, and you don't uh, any for the most part anywhere in america but europe requires it so that's why i was wondering yeah. what you did that way so Right. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, most of America, you don't need it. And the thing is that um, from different sailors that I've met in the Mediterranean, I don't know about the legality of this, but um, the, like you can just show your driver's license or your passport a lot of times and the borders are except that, um, which, yeah, I don't know about the legality. That makes sense with how almost everything else works with sailing of you obey the laws of your flag that you're flying as far as with, you know, life-saving devices and all the safety equipment, everything like that. That's all. And any regulations on um, your actual boat is all based on your home country. Um, but, yeah, I, I just had... I have a certification. Card. Yeah, yeah. I, I argue with them when I go through it. I have a Coast Guard do, uh, master's license, but I still argue. Oh, I nice. still argue with them that hey, I don't have to have one in America. They said oh, we don't care. Show us what you've got. <laughs> I said okay. Right. So rather than getting a pissing yeah, contest with them, I just say. Sure. Then again, they don't actually care. They just want to see something. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they need to check their boxes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you uh, hop on the boat in Spain, in Barcelona, Spain, 
Where do you head from there? Yeah, so another reason that I was okay with buying it sight unseen was um, he was like, so what are you trying to do? Um, he, he knew my story. He knew what I was doing, wanting to do, and he he wanted to sell the boat to somebody that was actually going to like sail it, sail it good and hard and a lot and um and so i was like well you know i'm we're trying to get to ibiza because i told one of my english friends hey i'll meet you in ibiza because you know like i'm gonna go live on a sailboat figured that'd be easy to do um and so he was like oh actually i'm sailing down to mallorca so here's here's what i suggest we do he's like you come here you move onto the boat you spend a couple days getting it ready and then we sail together down to mallorca and so in my mind, I'm like, okay, this guy is suggesting that for our first sale, we do 111 miles. So I'm going to assume he's not going to sell me a boat that's going to sink. Um, you know, like I can't imagine he's going to send me on a death trip. So that was a, another thing that kind of added to uh, the certainty behind it. But also, obviously, I was I knew buying it unseen was a big risk, but considering how cheap it was, I, I figured it was worth it. So yeah, we moved in on May 6th. And then on May 11th, we um, sailed to Mallorca, did 111 miles. Okay. So an overnight sail then, huh? Yeah, first sail was overnight. Um, all things went smooth the first sail. We did, um, let's see, we were able to sail, I think, like 60% of it, something mm-hmm. like that, and then had to motor um, the rest of it, which, you know, is not ideal, but not knowing anything, it was like, oh, that's fine. And then actually on arrival, we, we get to Mallorca and we um, dock at the gas station and we don't have any fresh water. We're like, what? We just had 60 gallons of fresh water. Where'd it go? Turns out that, and I, I honestly think, Andre might have forgot about this, but um, if you run the engine in the the old setup, there was like a faulty uh, pressure valve in the heater, the water heater. So you would run the engine and it would send the fresh water through the engine, through the water, water heater. That would build up pressure. And then it would just dump the water into the bilge. And then we had an automatic bilge pump that would just pump it out of the boat. And so we ran the engine for whatever, 10 hours. And we just pumped all of our fresh water into the sea. <laughs> wow. So now what kind of yeah. engine was originally on the boat? It was a Yanmar 30. Okay, that's the engine I've got. Yeah. Okay, I've never had that problem with mine by any stretch. So, Yeah, yeah, it was... It was very confusing um, for the first, well, long time sailing. But that, like, how we just filled it with water? How, how we didn't drink it? We didn't leave a tap on. Like, how did we lose this water? Um, yeah, I, I've never heard of that problem from anybody except for this boat. No, I've never heard of that either. So that's interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so we did that sail and then um, sailed to Ibiza and ran into some troubles with that, um, engine overheating and whatnot. Uh, basically, just need to add coolant to it. It just took me 
a month to figure that out. Um, I, I went and I like took it apart and like took out the temperature, um, the thermostat, and it's like that works. And, and then it like turns out, oh, it just actually needed coolant. Um, <laughs> and after I'd taken half the engine apart, um, and so yeah, we we ran into the engine overheating a few different times. Um, so it took us like four days to get to Ibiza and then had some fun time there and then sailed back to, um, to the mainland. And yeah, I think one of the reasons we ran into so much engine issues in the beginning was one, obviously I didn't know what I was doing with engines, but I think the last owner, like pretty much only sailed the boat. He would, I think he would run the engine the absolute least amount as possible and just wait for the wind. Um, and so you know when we got it the engine wasn't a hundred percent in top nick but it was fine and then after that we worked our way along the coast into france and then down through italy to albania because we had to get out of the shenzhen um to get so we had to hurry over to albania yeah and then up through croatia and on and on so you had to get out of the shenzhen because you'd been down up in the shenzhen too long is that what it was well, we spent um, we on the Blair in the Blair Islands. We probably spent a good two or three weeks, okay. and so I mean that's almost a third. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, San Carlos de la Rapita, we hauled out the boat and spent a week working on the boat. Got a survey, all that kind of stuff. Got put back in the water, and so by the time we actually left Spain, we're about a month and a half into the Schengen. And then getting from Spain to Albania is like a thousand miles or something like that. It's not a short distance. Um, so if you were to just do that, you know, day sales, basically, it's going to take you like close to a yeah, month, yeah. really, um, to get there. And so, you know, we made a few stops in France. Oh, and then, ah, oh, that's right. During, we did a sail from Cataquiz, Spain to Fran- La Ciota, France, and, um, we had just had dinghy davits made in Spain, and the people that fabricated them under-engineered them, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had the outboard engine inside of the dinghy up on the davits. Big mistake. Don't do that. And we were sailing in 25-plus knots, you know, six-foot waves, something like that, and the davits sheared. They were attached to the transom. They were attached to the transom and attached, like, inside the cockpit on the deck. And so where it was attached to the transom, that sheared. And so now the whole dinghy is, like, falling into the sea. The whole davits are, like, flexing and bending. Um, and so I put the dinghy in the water to tow it behind us. I didn't bring the outboard motor in. We didn't have a mount for the outboard motor. Um, and then the dinghy rolled a few different times. And so we lost the outboard motor halfway halfway through that sail. Um, and it had to finish the sail just on a head sail because I used the main halyard to hold the davits up to put some tension on those so they stopped flopping and so they didn't just, like, scratch holes in the transom. Um, and so we ended up spending, I don't know, I think, like, two weeks in France or t- three weeks in France in a spot that we were only planning on staying a couple of days. And so then that really cut down our time to get to Albania. Oh, yeah. So now you've got to go all the way around Italy and up to Albania then. That's right. a long haul. Right. And I didn't know the tricks that I know now that um, apparently 
in the Balearics, you can go to the Coast Guard and the border customs and whatnot, and they'll stamp you out of the country because you're on a sailboat in the islands. And so they treat you like how Malta does. Malta also does this, um, which had I known this, we would have gone to Malta instead of Albania. It's way closer. Um, in Malta, if you go to Malta on a sailboat and you're living on a sailboat, then they they don't stamp you into the country. If you have a boat in Malta, you fly into Malta, then you go to the port police and they'll stamp you out of the country because they consider you are a crew on a sailboat and therefore you're not in the country. You're on the boat. You're still allowed to come on and off the island as you please as long as you're living on the boat. But they, from what I understand, the reason they do that is because of, you know, well, one, it's a giant a big part of their economy is sailing and um especially in Malta um but also in the Balearics it's sailing and whatnot and so they don't want to be forcing customers out especially for some of these like mega yachts where they have they have to bring in their crew they they don't want to be forcing making it a big issue for these people to you know be rotating these crew in and out so they allow you to stay there so- so the, the the people in Malta actually specifically told me, they were like, if you're on a sailboat in Malta, you can stay here as long as you want. So, okay, let's get this clear because this is good information. Uh, in Malta and, yeah. and also in the Balearics, even though you may be in Malta or I've, the – well, let's just talk about Malta then because you said you are saying you're not really sure about Balearics, but – well, for, yeah, about the Balearics, I've I've heard that from a sailor in the marina that I'm in right now. They told me that they do that in the Balearics, but specifically in the Balearics, not in all of Spain. Okay. so um, And then I've heard similar things about the Canaries, but I haven't been to the Canaries. But I know Malta specifically, they I, – I had them explain it multiple different times because I was like, they said, this is what you're telling me. Like, how have I not heard this before? You're like, yeah, this is what we're saying. So you go in, even though you, so I sail, let's say I sail from Sicily down to Malta, which I've done, and I go in and I, technically I'm supposed to clear in, but you're telling me I go in and instead of clearing in, I'm clearing out then. Well, so what's happened to me and what's happened to a sailor friend of mine, he came in, he sailed to Malta from Italy. I sailed to Malta from Greece. Mm-hmm. So we go in. They look at your passport. You've been checked in, stamped into. I've been stamped into Greece. You've been stamped into Italy. They go. They made a mistake. They shouldn't have stamped you in. The you know the the Greeks. They they made a mistake. They shouldn't have stamped you in. This is this is how it works. You're on a sailboat. Your crew. You don't get stamped into the country. Um, and they told my friend the exact same thing with Italy. They're like they made a mistake. And so. Um, so yeah, you have to like convince them to stamp you out. Um, but but what they'll do if if you've got a a boat um, already in a marina there and you fly in and then you go to your boat, you get your papers. Like they were telling me, like okay, if you were to leave your boat here, you'll come with the documents with your crew list. You'll put no the crew, there's no crew on this boat, and then we'll stamp you into the country. So then you leave your documents with you, take them with you, whatever. Um, and then you go to the airport. Now you're stamped in. You can then fly out of Malta. So they'll stamp you out at the airport. You fly back into Malta to go get back on your boat. They stamp you in. You then go back to your boat. You write, okay, now I've got a crew of me and whoever's with you. You take that and your passports to Customs and Border Patrol. They'll then stamp you out. That was explicitly explained to me by the Malta Customs. 
So, but let's just say I'm sailing there. They just they just say, oh, they shouldn't have stamped you in in Greece. We're just going to stamp you out, even though I'm going to be sailing around Malta. That that's going to be okay then. Yeah, that part is a lot more tricky because you really have to like talk them into stamping you out because they'll just tell you that no, they made a mistake. It's not our problem. So technically, what I yeah, should so, have done so is got... like the way that it works perfectly is if you're if you're sailing from Tunisia or a country not in the Shenzhen and you sail to Malta, they will not stamp you into the Shenzhen. Um, if you're sailing from a Shenzhen country and you're already stamped in, they might stamp you out if you can like convince them to. They also might not stamp you out and just tell them that they made a mistake and that's not our problem to fix. So best best thing to do is when you're in Italy, get, get uh, stamped out of Italy then. Go to customs and say, I'm leaving. Right. And then sail on down to Malta and hang out in Malta. And you don't have to get stamped into Malta then? Right. You still do all the paperwork, but they, they basically stamp your boat into the country. Like they'll they'll do all the paperwork in the the crew list. It's like they have a crew list that they stamp into the country with their uh, Port Authority stamp, not with the passport mm-hmm. stamp. Um, but, yeah, that's that's basically what you have to do is you have to get whatever country you're leaving to stamp you out. But if you the, the issue is that if you tell them that you're going to Malta – they won't stamp you out because you're sailing to a Shenzhen country. And then it's it's just poor communication all around. Uh, so you have to tell them that you're going to Tunisia or you're going to a different country so that they outside of the Shenzhen so that they stamp you out so then you can go to Malta and live by the Maltese rules. <laughs> okay. Or run the risk of trying to convince the person to, like, fix the mistake that whatever country you're coming from made. According to them. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a whole like it it really kind of brings you down the like bureaucratic rabbit hole of like this is all so ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So all right, let's continue with our with our trip. So you you ended up in <laughs> France. You had to replace the uh, davit, and now you're where are you headed now? This first year then. Yeah, so we were actually able to repair the davits, but had to replace the outboard. And then from there, we sailed to Corsica, Mm -hmm. just spent a couple days on Corsica, Mm -hmm. and then went through the Strait of Bonifacio, shredded a Genoa, sailed to Rome. From Rome, went down to Pompeii, or went to Ponza, the island Mm -hmm. of Ponza, from Ponza to Pompeii, Pompeii down, um, I don't remember the name of the islands, just north of Sicily. Made a stop on Sicily and then like scooted over to Albania really yeah, quick. Yeah, that's the Aeol- that's by the Aeolian that time, islands just north of Sicily. You're talking about, yeah, probably Lapari uh, is yeah, where you went. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty nice. Uh, Ponza, Ponza is a gem. Yeah. That one's a nice mm-hmm. one. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little island. Did you go to both anchorages, the town of the the town of Ponza, and then around the, the around the other side of the island as well? We just did the the main one outside of the okay. town. We were only there for two days. By this time, by the time we got to Rome, um, we only had like seventeen days to stay um, within the Shenzhen Agreement <laughs> oh, to get to okay. Albania. Yeah. So um, it was like we were just and and from Rome, you're still talking like five hundred something mm-hmm. miles, and so it's yeah. 
It's like, well, if we want to see Pompeii and we want to spend a day or two on Ponza, then we're going to have to skip everything else, basically. All right. So you go down through the Messina Straits and then hit straight on over. Do you do a direct beeline up to uh, Corfu and then uh, to Albania then? Yeah, we did. We did one night on Sicily and then went straight to Albania. Didn't even stop in Corfu. Okay. Okay. Yeah, straight to Sarande. And then from Sarande, worked our way up the Albanian coast, which was nice. Um, Albania is a beautiful country, uh, but definitely lacking in sailing infrastructure. So you should know that if you want to sail Albania. Really beautiful, really nice people. The inland of the country is, like, spectacular, but not good sailing infrastructure. So so are you, are you hanging out? If you need to get water... You have to, like, use jerry cans to get water and that kind of stuff. So are you hanging out in Albania to basically burn through a month or so to get back in the Schengen then? Uh, No. Well, something that we found out with Albania on arrival, as as an American, you can stay in Albania for a year without any visa of any kind. They love Americans there. Um, And that has to do with the political, geopolitical system with how America treats Albania as a point of interest strategically. Um, and so they're really nice to Americans there. You can stay there for a year without any any documentation, just with getting stamped in. Um, so we spent, I don't know exactly how long we spent there, but we wanted to go up to, um, at the time we thought, okay, the only places that we can stay that are outside of the Shenzhen are Albania, Montenegro, and at the time, Croatia. Um, I don't know if Croatia's finally joined the Shenzhen. They've been talking about it, but they kept delaying it. Um, so we we went from Albania, worked our way up into Montenegro. From Montenegro, worked our way over to Croatia. Um, spent a winter in Croatia, replaced the engine, and then uh, sailed down to Greece. Last, not this past. But last January, uh, let's see. I guess we made the crossing. Back up a se- back March. up a second. Where do you where did you replace the engine in? What what harbor did you use when you replaced the engine in Croatia? Yeah, that was in Pula, Croatia. Okay. Um, I would I would not recommend doing boat work there okay. <laughs> personally. Um, it's from what I understand, and this is all secondhand coming from somebody that English is not the first language. But from what I understand, the way they do it in that marina is it's a pay-to-play type of service for the people working in the marina. And so you're not always guaranteed the most honest of workers. That's for what I understand. And my experience does not speak against that. But it it it's confusing. I'm not 100% sure if it does speak to that because there's so much lost in translation. Um, so you don't know if you, you guys are just misunderstanding each other or if there's something somebody's taking advantage of somebody. But I would, I would not recommend doing work in Pula. It's expensive um, and you it's hard to tell exactly what you're going to get. But the, just in Croatia, it's like... Uh, do your work in Greece or do it in Tunisia. If you're going to do it in the Mediterranean, Croatia is just so expensive now. They've really raised their prices in the last five years, and it's it's not cheap anymore like it used to be. No, it's 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 really an expensive country to visit. Uh, but they've probably tripled their charter fleet over the last five years too. I mean, there's more catamarans floating around there than anywhere I've seen. 
So it's uh, it's a very, very mm-hmm. crowded place to visit with uh, lots and lots of charter boats out there and a few cruising boats, but mostly it's charter boats. Um, I know a mm-hmm. lot of people really love Croatia. I've been up and down that coast four times, and I'll probably come back down again. Mm. And uh, nah, it's not high on my list, quite honestly, anymore. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few business practices, like the fact that there's different places in Croatia that they charge you to stay on anchor. Mm -hmm. That, to me, seems criminal. Um, I don't understand how you can charge somebody to stay on anchor, but they do that there. I've never experienced that in any other country. Um, And so when Greece is so close, like it's in comparison to like Greece is so amazing for sailing. And how close it is into proximity, it's like if you're trying to decide between Greece or Croatia, go with Greece. The, it's so much cheaper. Um, the People are so much more laid back. Croatia, I got pulled over like three or four different times by the Coast Guard wanting to check papers and that kind of stuff just while cruising. Um, that never happens in Greece. I've never had that happen to me in Greece. Um, there's There's so many benefits to sailing in Greece and it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> that being said, Croatia is a gorgeous place. It's just the bureaucracy around it has kind of and yeah, the amount of charter has kind of brought it down a couple pegs. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Well, so so um so is it did you spend the winter sailing in Croatia then? Cuz I saw that one video of yours that said sailing in Croatia in the winter. Right, so we got hauled out on September 11th, and we were out of the water until January. Um, and that was initially brought out of the water um, to fix a gearbox. That, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a long story. But we got put back in the water in January and then started sailing south in January. Um, and so sailed through... Croatia in January and February, and then left Croatia in February or March, um, and had to pay a fine for overstaying. Ah, okay, okay. How much was the fine? Um, it wasn't that expensive. I don't remember okay. exactly, but um, it was like it was less than three hundred. I think it was like a hundred something euros. Okay. I think it was like 300-something kuna. Okay. I can't remember All right, exactly. that's fine. So I've sedated yeah. that marina in in Pula. Is that where you had the work done? Was that that marina? In Veruda? Oh, in Pula. In Pula. So you, was, right, right. Marina Veruda. Uh, well, it's the one with the... The great yeah. big one on the southern side mm-hmm. of Pula that really goes back up in there. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like... A, if if you were walking from like the entrance of the marina to the marina office, it's about a kilometer. It's a real deep bay. Um, they've got okay. hundreds and hundreds of boats in there. Okay, Is that no, the I'm talking, talking about, about the one talking with about the floating the one, docks. Like, that's what I'm thinking. The ACI marina with the floating docks. So yeah, that's not the one you stayed at. You hmm. stayed at the one, but which is more closer to the shipyard with a big. Uh, is is that correct? There's a big shipyard there as well. No, the the shipyard's up on the north, just like right outside of 
like downtown. I'm talking about the one it's uh, on the southern side of Pula. Okay, okay. Um, and it does have floating docks, but it's that it's, okay. it's a big bay. Yeah, okay, I see that, that one. I, um, it, it's not big and like wide. It's just really deep, really. Okay, long. I know where you're talking about. I've I've never been down that marina. I've, I've anchored around the next bay to the south of that. Is where I've anchored, right? But, but yeah. I've never gone into that marina. Okay, so that's where you had had the work done then. Okay, and I see there is a travel yeah. lift there as well. So at least I think there is. There's a what? Is there a travel lift there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a travel. It's okay. uh, well, I'm not exactly. Is a travel lift the one with the wheels? Mm-hmm. No, they they don't have a. When I was there, they didn't. No, have I don't see one. They, they added one. How they did they pull the boat out of the like water? A tower. Okay, so the crane basically the, lifts you up. Then is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 not like a truck crane. It's a crane that's built into the ground. It's a big tower. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, continuing on. Sorry to distract you a little <laughs> bit, but so you get you put no the boat worries. back in in January and then. Uh, and then sailed down the coast from there? Yeah, yeah. We sailed from Bula all the way down to Dubrovnik, and it took us about a month. We went up into Shibnik, took the, uh, went up the the river there to Scrodden. That was recommended us by mm-hmm. um, this guy named Martin, who he's a, he's, a, he's a Swiss sailor. He lives on a boat that's over 100 years old. Um, made a video on floor about him. Really, really cool boat named Stir, um, green wooden boat. And he recommended Scrodden because he was like, you can actually go all the way up there and then you're in fresh water. And it's really good for the engine to clean out the engine. Um, but then it's also cool to be in fresh water and it's a nice place. So we went up there and at the time of the year, everything, you know, all the uh, the docking was free. The public docks were free. I mean, everything is basically closed, but um, the public docks were free. And then we went into the National Park and saw the real cool waterfall there. It's Skridinsky Boo, I think is the name of the waterfall. Kirka, Kirka Falls. Really beautiful. Kirka Falls is what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Kirka, Kirka National mm-hmm. Park. Yeah. And, um, and then from there went down um, to... Yeah, to Dubrovnik, made made some stops on, on some islands. Just outside of the island of Khvar, um, we anchored um, on an island just southwest there. I don't remember the name of it, but um, during what was apparently the worst Bora, which is the northern wind in Croatia, in over 200 years. And that was intense. That was really intense. We're, I'd never experienced anything like that on anchor. We've got, you know, like a four-foot freeboard on anchor. It was dunking our rails. Wow. Uh, now, do you have... So do you have very strong. Do you wind. have something in your boat to heat up the inside of the boat? I mean, sailing in yeah, the winter is no fun. Yeah, we've got a cubic mini wood okay. stove. Okay. I was going to say, because that's that's pretty miserable sailing in the winter, just because you're you're exposed all the time, you're outside all the time, it's cold and wet. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah, it's definitely intense. Um, the Cubic Mini made a huge difference. Um, one, obviously because of the heat, but then two, having a wood-burning stove in the boat, having like a little fireplace uh, really lifts your spirits if you're feeling down. So it, it provided more than just heat. Yeah, yeah. Where did you get the wood from? Did you just go to shore and pick it up? 
Yeah, that's pretty much what we do now. Um, in the very beginning, we we're just burning wood briquettes because it was the easiest. You could just break them apart with your hands and then chuck them in there, and they burn for a good amount of time. Um, you know, just compressed sawdust, basically. But now it's, yeah, we find wood. I've got a little tiny hatchet and a hand saw so I can saw them down into to proper size to burn. Okay. All right. So that was, uh, so you kept going south. You went down to Dubrovnik. And then how far did you get that winter then? Did you just keep going? Yeah. Yeah. So after, because we had spent like four, four and a half months on land unexpectedly we were, we were originally thinking we were only going to be out of the water for about a month to fix the en- engine and everything then it turned into like four and a half months and so we we're like we need to get moving um and so yeah we just kept sailing and um sailed from dubrovnik straight to greece um so that was i don't know exactly what the mileage is on that but that was an overnight sail with two of us um, to Othoni and then cruise through the cruise through the Ionian, which is beautiful sailing. The Ionian is like mwah, really nice, and then went around so did, so, the Peloponnese so did you, Peninsula. Did you clear into Greece in uh, Corfu then? Okay, yeah. yeah, in Corfu. All right. So when you say we, uh, who was with you on the boat? Um, so when we first moved onto the boat, there was three of us. It was me. Uh, Tara and Jackson Peters. And then um, Jackson had to leave about three or four months in because he needed to go back to Canada to finish his degree for filmmaking at his university. And then after that, he converted a van and was driving around North America filming for Florp. And during this whole time, when we first moved on, we were making um, a little sailing series um, that we were putting on YouTube on the main channel on floor, which is probably the videos that you're mm-hmm. seeing. And then we did that for a while. And then it just started to be too much having just all the different work that I was doing. And then also having the two types of content on the one channel. So now we started a separate channel, Dylan McGaster, which is all sailing, which is like bringing up to date. Cause that, like you said, that, um, stops in Dubrovnik. That's the last sailing video on floor. So if you want to see like the first, year and a half of sailing you know i guess the first year of sailing you can find that on floor but then if you want to see stuff after that more recent stuff that's on dylan mcgaster on youtube um and so we uh so then it was just tara and i and then her and i sailed um until that summer and then she went back to america for a little while and then she came back out and then we sailed together for a while until um December this past December and then um then she she left the boat and we had a bit of a disagreement so to speak and so yeah so right now Jackson's back out here and um we're in Tunisia waiting out the quarantine and then we'll start sailing again um but in between that time like last summer I had quite a few different people on and off the boat Uh, my dad came out for a week did some sailing and then I had um, Bobby from Sailing Doodles and Laura, they came out and did some sailing. And then I had my friend Danny and Troy, and we did some sailing all together. And, um, yeah, went up into uh, all the way up to Bulgaria, which was cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that. So you went around Greece. You went through the Corinth Canal. 
And yeah. we went around the corner. No, we went through the Corinth Canal on the way the second time. Okay. To get get to Tunisia, we went through the Corinth Canal. First time we went around the Peloponnese Peninsula. Oh, okay, Peninsula. okay. You went all the way around then. Yeah. Okay. So is this is this basically a year round uh, vocation for you? Living on the boat year round now. Right. Yeah. That's that's it. I've um, I've been living on the boat for over two years now, and during that time, I spent. Um, you know, there's a few different times we rented a van for about a week at a time and would drive around in the van. Um, and then at one point I did a two week or two and a half week trip to the UK to do a bunch of filming that I left the boat in Bulgaria. And then after that, we took a road trip around, uh, Romania and Bulgaria. And that was like another three weeks. So the longest I've been not sailing on the boat besides the times on land during the winter being hauled out, uh, have been two months. Other than that, I've lived on the boat the whole time and been sailing. Okay. And so now you started the uh, VAT time clock over again by going to Tunisia, and also the Schengen is what you're down there for, too, then. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, for that, and then we need to do some work on the boat, um, and it's just way cheaper to do here. Martin, the guy that I mentioned earlier, um, this this guy Martin, he when he was younger, like in his twenties, he sailed from uh, it from France, I think, on a four twenty down around Italy, across the Ionian, through Greece into Turkey and back on a four twenty, <laughs> and. So he's been sailing his whole life. He's circumnavigated the world a few different times. So he recommended coming to Tunisia to do work. He was like, they do good work there, and it's really cheap. Um, and so that's why we're here. And it's good weather, dry for the most part. So first of all, I'm I'm at that stage where my boat engine is uh, almost 30 years old. And it's a mm-hmm. Yanmar 3 GM30F, probably the same engine you had. and uh, Probably, yeah, yeah. And so the debate is... Uh, keeping it going or replacing it, and you've really been happy with the beta engine then that you put in. I've been, yeah, I've been really happy with the beta. Um, I've run into pretty much no issues with that. The only time I ran into a little bit of issues was when I didn't preheat the engine to. So start it's got, it. so it has glow diesel. plugs. Then is what it's got. Then All right, because right. the Anmars right. don't have glow plugs. So, okay. Right. And with the um with the betas, you can get an aftermarket um manual starter, which I wanted to get just so that I you know, if my battery went flat or something like that and I was in a pinch and it's like absolute worst case scenario, I could still start up the engine. Um which is cool that you can get that and then your engine is completely manual, but those are pretty expensive. Um, but then if you got that, you would run into no issues. And then as long as you keep up with maintenance, it w- runs like a charm. The only other issues I've run into is clogged fuel filters, which has more to do with my fuel tank and less to do with the right, engine. Right, that has nothing to do with the engine. So, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, now now was it a direct changeover? I mean, did, it, did they match up the uh, motor mounts, or did you have to modify the motor mounts? Yeah, I modified the motor mounts. Okay. Um, yeah, I. W- what kind of boat? Do you uh, have? Bristol Channel Cutter. Bristol Channel. Sam Moore's designed nice. Bristol Channel Cutter. Yeah. 
And how long is that? 28 feet on deck, 37 feet overall. 20. Okay, yeah, so about the same size. Um, pretty close. It's, um, yeah, we had to modify the feet, um, and then I had to go with a shallow sump instead of a, the normal size sump. And so those two modifications um, were the only ones I had to make. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure those were the only modifications I had to make. And then it just slotted right in. It fit perfectly. Um, making sure you measure the feet right and everything so that the the um, uh, drive, drive shaft, whatever you call that, lines up with the uh, propeller mm-hmm. shaft. Mm-hmm. There, the gearbox. Yeah. The gearbox lines up with the propeller shaft. Making sure that's all lined up is, like, a little stressful when you're measuring out the feet for the custom feet. But it worked out perfectly. Um, we just had to hack like three or four inches off the propeller shaft, and we have way more room in the engine bay Ooh. with this smaller engine. It's it is so much easier to work. So how many than the Yanmar? Because the Yanmar, you have to. Um, I don't know exactly how your boat's laid out, but you probably have to climb, go to access it from the side to pump out the oil. Yeah, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah. Exactly. This one, it's got a pump right on the front, and it's built into it. It's fantastic. For changing the oil, huh? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. That was, like, the, one of the first things. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so much better. Not to mention the the amount of vibration throughout the whole boat is way less. That being said, I did add a bit of insulation to the engine bay when I replaced it, but it vibrate the Yanmar I had it was like if you were sitting in the cockpit and you wanted to take a nap and the engine was on if you laid your head against the fiberglass it felt like it was going to shake your teeth mm-hmm. out um but this one it's just like a nice little purr um and it's definitely quieter so is it the 30 horsepower yeah, I, I like is it, it the 30 horsepower motor that you put in there I put in a 38 38 wow okay yeah. they've got yeah I, I like it um like I said, I haven't had any issues with it in, um, well, oh, we're over an hour already and we barely scratched the nice. surface. So I'm going to cut off this yeah. interview. We're going to come back and we're going to start another interview, but it'll be part two. So hold on a second here. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. <laughs> 